John. We're going to finish John chapter 16 today, so if you want to go ahead and, and turn there, you can feel free to. Let me just give you a little rundown of where we're headed over today in the next two weeks as we close out our time together. Um, I had contemplated, you know, where, where would I want to end things, right? We've been working our way through the Gospel of John basically my entire time here. Um, we've taken breaks here or there. But I couldn't think of a better place to end than John chapter 17. And so what we're going to do is we're going to finish John chapter 16 today where Jesus is giving instructions and kind of this last teaching moment to his disciples. And John chapter 17 gives Jesus' extended prayer. We often know Jesus' short prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, right? Not my will, but your will be done. We often know those, that short thing, but John gives us an extended all of chapter 17 prayer of what Jesus wants from the Father for his disciples and eventually, he says, for those who would believe through the disciples, which is you and me. And so I can't think of anything better than to spend our last two weeks together talking about what does Jesus want? What did Jesus pray for for us? And are we answering that prayer in the way that we live? So I don't have anything special planned as far as a, a sermon or anything. I, I couldn't think of anything better to end with. So we're going to finish this, this teaching moment of Jesus with his disciples in John chapter 16 today. And then we'll spend two weeks breaking down chapter 17. And it's also kind of interesting as my parents came to help, um, help watch the kids while we got to pack a little bit of some of the, the early on stuff yesterday and... What's funny is they're here when we're finishing John chapter 16, and the very first sermon I ever preached at 18 years old was over some of these verses. And so it's kind of funny. I said it's not going to sound anything like it ever did, it did back then 13 years ago, but um, it, it will be a little repetitive for them, but hopefully in a good way. But anyway, let's go ahead and go to the Lord in prayer as we begin. Father, we, we love you. As we consider this morning what you've done for us in Christ, the fact that you've given us your word so we can hear from you, and that we have access to come to you in prayer and make requests, Help us to never lose sight of the significance of that. Of what happened by Christ's death and resurrection for us. Help us this morning as we hear your word to us. Help us to see what needs to change in us. Help us to see what we need to have stirred in us more into worship and praise because of what you've done, what you are doing, what you will do. So help us this morning, Father, by your Spirit, work in our hearts, stir us to worship and stir us to holy and righteous living. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. What would it take... 
for you to wake up each morning and have a complete peace about whatever happened that day? Would it take having a million dollars in your bank account? Having every person you come in contact with that day compliment you to give you some boost of confidence? Would it take a magic pill you woke up and took every morning knowing that pill meant you would never feel pain or never get sick again? All of us have hearts that want to be at peace. We seek financial peace, relational peace, peace of the health of our bodies. But the problem is, each one of us knows, even if we reached any of these milestones, it would never be enough, would it? We still would find reasons to be anxious, to be fearful, to be worried about something in life. To live rightly in this world, we need a peace that goes beyond this world. A peace that surpasses all of these earthly attempts. A peace that remains no matter what the circumstances are around us. That's the only way any of us can wake up and truly live as we were meant, created to live. Well, as we've been walking through this section of the Gospel of John, we've been seeing Jesus describe such a peace. A peace that belongs to him, but he says to his disciples, you also can have my peace. He's about to go to his death on the cross and eventually leave his disciples to go be with the Father in heaven. And he wants his disciples to have the assurance that when he leaves, they can live at complete peace in this world. And John has given us chapters, from chapter 13 all the way now into 16, chapters full of reasons of why we should be able to have this peace. And today we come to the conclusion of these chapters. Jesus' last words here to his disciples before he prays, and then chapter 18 he gets betrayed and arrested. And so we look this morning at this final description. You could even call it maybe a summary of everything he's been saying in all these chapters, of the peace that the disciples can have as they're going to continue their lives without Jesus physically present with them. And my hope is these final words will confirm to us what we've already been hearing in all these chapters, that we can wake up each morning with the greatest, fullest peace that we could ever experience, having this peace that stirs our hearts to live confidently or to take heart, as Jesus will say, when we pursue the life that he has given us to live. So let's go ahead and look at it in John chapter 16. John chapter 16, starting in verse 25. I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. His disciples said, Ah, 
Now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. So you can see where this theme of having Christ's peace becomes the whole theme of chapters 13 through 16, right? Just look at the last verse there, again, in verse 33. I have said these things. What are the these things? Well, it certainly includes the verses we just read, but it also includes everything from chapter 13 all the way. This entire night, Jesus is summarizing, saying, all of this that I've told you is so that you will have peace. Right? All of these things, that's what he tells us, I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. So what I want to do for the first part of our time together this morning is give a big picture of Christ's peace. What I've done is I've taken everything that Jesus has said from chapters 13 through 16, and I've arranged it chronologically according to Jesus' life. And I want to give you everything that I could possibly try to pull out, summarized in a sense, of all the reasons for peace he has given, this big picture of peace that we can have. All right, so I'm not going to put the verses up there because we'd, we'd, be, we'd be jumping around way too much. Right? We wouldn't have enough time to flip through that many pages and that many verses. So just listen and rejoice with the peace that is available. First, Jesus has explained the arrival of the Son. When Jesus, as the Son of God, enters into this world, it was like un- unlike any other moment in human history. He tells us he was sent by the Father. The God of the entire Old Testament sent his Son into the world. But not only sent him into the world, but Jesus says the Father dwells in him as the Son. So that everything that the Son says are the very words of the Father himself. Everything the Son does are the works of the Father himself. Whoever sees the Son has seen the Father. Whoever hears the Son has heard the Father. Whoever knows the Son has known the Father. This is the ongoing reality, the revealing that happens throughout the entirety of Jesus' life. Right? So we go from the arrival of the Son to now the life of the Son. Everything Jesus does, everything Jesus says has been commanded by the Father to him. And he does all that the Father has commanded him because he loves the Father and he wants to abide in his Father's love. So he does whatever he is told. But the world... Even God's own chosen people, Israel, did not receive the Son. They did not know the Son, which meant they didn't know the Father, so when they reject Jesus, they also were rejecting the Father himself. 
the world hated Jesus, proving themselves to be guilty of sin. They persecuted him, sought to kill him, and they're going to be very successful the next day in this timeline. But not everybody responded with hate. Jesus tells us what? That he chose some disciples out of the world. And these disciples that he has chosen, he now calls them friends. The Father has drawn certain people to believe, to trust, to love Jesus, to receive Jesus. And as they've heard the words of Jesus spoken, Jesus tells them they've been cleansed by his words. They have experienced what it means to see the Holy Spirit at work in the Son himself, but also to some extent within themselves already. They've watched and heard from Jesus what it means for him to be the way, the truth, and the life. However, the life of the Son is about to come to an end. So Jesus speaks about the death of the Son The way that he is paving for us to get to the Father includes the sacrifice of his own life. As he goes to the cross, he is displaying the greatest act of love that anyone could ever show, that a man lay down his life for his friends. And not just so his friends don't physically die, but so that their sins are paid for and they don't have to face eternal death. And while this death of Jesus is going to be a very real sorrowful time for his followers, he reminds them, Satan has not won. It will appear that he has, but the ruler of this world has no claim on Jesus. He will prove himself victorious over death, over Satan, when it goes from the death of the Son to the resurrection of the Son. The disciples will see him again, and they will have their hearts rejoice with a never-ending joy, because he is alive. Since Jesus lives, those also who believe in Jesus will also live. But Jesus doesn't stay for long, does he? Death of Son, resurrection of the Son, which leads us to the departure of the Son. The world he once entered he soon is now going to leave to go be with the Father again. When he goes, he's going to his Father's house, which has many rooms, and he's going to be preparing a place for us. But that leaves the disciples waiting to go to that place. And he says he will go to the Father, and he will ask the Father, and the Father and Son will send a helper. Which brings us to really what has been the most details we've seen throughout these chapters that we're told about. The one moment, the one point in the timeline of history that he describes the most in these chapters is the coming of the Spirit. What happens once he does depart? What hope is there to have? Jesus actually tells them it's an advantage to the disciples and to us that he leaves and sends the Spirit. As the Spirit comes, Christ actually comes with him. Not physically, but in a way that he actually says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you again. Christ will be in 
us. We will be loved by the Father as we love the Son. The Father and Son say they will make their home with us by the Holy Spirit. And by the Spirit, we abide in Jesus as the vine, and we are the branches who produce fruit, fruit that gives glory to the Father. And the Father, as he sees us producing fruit, will prune us that we may produce more fruit. Those who don't produce fruit are taken away, but those who do produce are pruned in order to produce fruit. More. And all of this, between our relationship with the Father and the Son, happens by the Spirit who we're told when He comes, He will teach us all things and guide us into all truth. The disciples are told the Spirit will remind them of everything they've heard Jesus say, and now we have a written record of everything that He brought them to remember. So now all that truth they were guided into has been written down so you and I can also be guided into All truth. The Spirit is going to bear witness. He does bear witness to us about Jesus. Jesus says the Spirit will glorify the Son. He's going to take what he hears from the Son and he will declare it to us. Even to the disciples, he declares things that are yet to come, as we see in different books of the New Testament. The Spirit convicts us of sin, of righteousness, of judgment. And with the Spirit's help, we can come to the Father in the name of the Son in prayer and ask and receive what we ask for in pursuit of glorifying both the Father and the Son. We can come to the Father and ask and receive a fullness of joy, a fullness of peace, a fullness of love, both love for God and love for one another. This is the life that we live as we await the final moment Jesus describes. That's all the coming of the Spirit. That's all in these chapters. But we come to the final moment, the return of the Son. And he doesn't give much details about this, but there's two sides to it. First, one one day, all those who didn't produce fruit, all those who don't abide in Jesus, who have been taken away, they on that day will be gathered and burned in judgment. But all those who do love Jesus and believe in him, he will come and he will take us to himself and we will forever get to be where he is. That's all he tells us about the return. But my friends, does this produce any sense of peace in you? As you think about all these truths, all these things that Jesus just declared in all these chapters... This peace that we should find in these realities that he explains should be more than enough for us. The peace of everything he did, is doing, and is going to do should resound in our hearts and stir us to every day live with confidence, knowing he's done exactly what he said he would do. We can face financial instability. We can face relational conflict. We can face physical illness and still have Christ's peace as we go through any of it. All of these chapters are marinated with the beautiful truths our hearts can latch on to and treasure no matter what we have to face in life. But what I want to do 
is now focused, now that we've seen the summary of all these chapters, I want to focus in on the verses that we read this morning. Because, like I said, I think what these verses do is they give us a kind of summary. They produce a theme for us that I think is the point of all those chapters. Everything I just talked about, about the chronology of the timeline of Jesus' life and how he describes it in all these chapters, I think are summarized in what he's about to say. The theme is a changed relationship by Christ's peace. I want you to just, for a moment, put yourselves in the shoes of a Jewish person. You have an entire Old Testament, right, discussing your people's relationship with God himself. The God they call Yahweh or Jehovah. A promise, right, of another king coming, right? Because they've been in exile. God has been silent for 400 years. They don't have anything added to the Old Testament. 400 years of silence. They were in exile. They returned home. But now they're still overtaken by another nation, right? Right now it's Rome when Jesus comes. But they have this promise of another day a king is going to come. A king like David who's going to have a throne that lasts forever, When that king comes, when that Messiah comes, there's an inheritance that they're going to receive unlike anything else. And then this Jesus enters onto the scene. This Messiah, calling himself the Son of God, and he starts referring to Yahweh, Jehovah, as Father. That was unheard of. That was not normative language for the Old Testament. And so now this guy shows up and starts calling the Lord, the I Am, the Jehovah. They start calling him Father. And now he says he himself is the Son. But not only the relationship between the Father and the Son, but Jesus here, especially in these final verses, is telling his disciples that their relationship to the Father is going to change. The way that they once related to God is going to be entirely different now because of what Jesus is about to do. Right? Before, if they wanted to hear from the Father, what did they have to do? Well, the Father used prophets, right? He particularly gave words to one person to go speak to the rest of the people on his behalf. Or if the people wanted to do something towards God, what did they have to do? They had to go to the priest in order to go to the Father which they didn't even call the Father. But now Jesus says that's all going to change. Look at verse 25. I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. Now, plainly can often to us seem like a plain word, but it has tremendous significance here because what this means is everything up until this point wasn't plain. Everything was veiled to some extent. Everything was still somewhat hidden. And he says, there is going to come a day when I will give you plainness. You will see with clarity who the Father is. And this first happens at Jesus' resurrection, we saw it with Mary Magdalene, though we didn't focus on it in our, that particular thing that Jesus said to her when we looked at it at Easter. Jesus does come to her on that very first Sunday and says to her what? 
He says, my father is now your father. Her relationship to the father has changed now that Jesus has died and been resurrected. Or we see it elsewhere with Jesus' resurrection, right? He goes on the road to Emmaus with some of the disciples, and he reveals to them how all the things in the Old Testament were pointing forward towards him and find their climax and fulfillment in him. But even after Jesus ascends into heaven, how much more is this true? We have an entire New Testament filled with plainness about the Father that the disciples wrote down as they were being told this. As they were brought to remembrance of everything about Jesus and as they were writing letters that were inspired, right? They were carried along by the Holy Spirit. All this plainness for us who believe. We now can hear plainly from God himself. Does that give you any sense of peace? That a plainness nobody in the Old Testament had ever experienced, a plainness even the disciples had never experienced still up until this point in their lives, is available to you and me through Jesus. But the relationship also goes the other way. It's that, yes, we hear with plainness about the Father, but we also have the access to come speak to the Father ourselves. Look at verse 26. In that day, you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. I'll just pause there for a moment. So he says, right, and just like last week's verses, if you remember them, he says, you're going to come to the Father in my name, make, you're going to ask, and he's going to give you that which would give you fullness of joy. Right? He will answer your prayers. So there's a relationship between us and the Father now that we can approach him with confidence through the name of the Son. But what does Jesus say specifically at the second half of this verse? What does he make a note of? I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. Now at first, the first glance at this, it's like, well, why not, Jesus? Why won't you go ask the Father on my behalf? Right? We often think of this maybe like little kids treat their parents, right? If you want to spend the night at your friend's house, your friend goes ask your mom and dad for you, so they can't tell him no, but they could easily tell you no, right? Or if you're in trouble about something and you want to do something, right, but you just got in trouble that day, what do you do? You send the sibling to go ask, right, because there's some tension, there's some hostility still there, so you send the sibling to go ask on behalf of you. But Jesus says, I don't have to go on your behalf anymore, There's a change in the relationship that happens. Because what's true in verse 27? For the Father himself loves you. He loves you. You don't have a priest anymore that has to go back and forth from the Father to you, from you to the Father, back and forth anymore, because the hostility wall has been broken down by Jesus. The sin that was a barrier between us and the Father has been broken down by him going to the cross, that you now can have full access to come to the Father. And he loves you when you do it. 
He's not saying, nope, nope, there's another route you need to go to. There's another person you need to come to first. He's saying, welcome. Come on in and talk to me. Make your requests of me and I will give you fullness of joy. All the fruit that glorifies me. But notice the particulars of who the Father loves here. For the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. So let this first just be a reminder of the two verbs Jesus puts together there. What are they? Loved and believed. We often want to make these synonyms, don't we? Well, to love Jesus is to just believe in Jesus. It's just to have faith in him. But Jesus intentionally includes these two things together. He's not just repeating himself. He's saying to love Jesus is to believe in Jesus. These two things work together. Both our faith and our affections work hand in hand. They're not the exact same thing. You should love Jesus if you have faith in Jesus. There is no such thing as I believe in Jesus, but I don't really love him. That doesn't exist. Faith and affections go hand in hand. But the temptation in this verse would be to say, I must love and believe in order to earn the Father's love for me. Right? We often get get in that sort of tendency in our relationships. I have to earn this love by loving and believing But remember what we just sang, we love because he first loved us, right? So the father loves us, sends his son to die for us so that we can be drawn to the son and then love the son so that then we can experience the depths of the love the father already has for us through hearing from him and through him hearing from us. So it's not that we earn his love, it's that he already loved us, and now we get to experience the depths of that love. So two changes in the relationship. Christ speaks plainly to us about the Father, and we have access to come straight to the Father. That's a massive shift. Can we agree upon that? Compared to everything that existed before, all the sin that kept a barrier between God and his people before, Jesus changes all of it that we now can hear plainly and go straight to him. But we have to remember what causes this change. Verse 28. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. Now, at first glance, you might say, that's just repetitive of what he's already been saying. But just look at it closely for a moment. Jesus left the Father and came into the world. And now he's about to leave the world and go back to the Father. What causes that pivot? At what moment in history does that pivot happen where Jesus no longer needs to be entered into this world, but he now can go back and be in relationship, full relationship with his Father? Why does it switch? Why does it reverse? The death and resurrection of Jesus. When he dies on the cross, 
and when he's raised from the dead. He has accomplished everything the Father has sent him to accomplish. So now he can go back and be with the Father. And what has Christ accomplished by his death and resurrection? Peace. All of us who were dead in our sin, loving the things of this world, suppressing the truth about God, are now reconciled to that God if we believe and love Jesus. It's only, it's only by the blood of Jesus that we can have that peace, that change in relationship that happens. But that peace is our only hope for living in this world. My friends, may this be a reminder for us that the one essential relationship that must be mended for us to live in this world rightly is the relationship, first and foremost, between God and us. As much as it bothers us to have conflict with family members, with our friends, with our co-workers, with whoever it is, that conflict, horizontally, should never bother us as much as our vertical conflict does. That in Jesus Christ, by his death and resurrection, we now have peace with the creator of the universe. The Lord of the Old Testament, the one whom the Son calls Father. And now you and I get to call Father as we've been adopted as sons and daughters into his family through our union with his Son. By that peace now we have, we can hear plainly from the Father, and we can come and have access to the Father. What better peace could you ever ask for? What other peace do you need to live in this world other than to know that the creator of the universe, God himself, has been reconciled? You've been reconciled to him by Christ's death and resurrection. But as we hear all of this and rejoice in this peace, we must quickly, something the disciples failed to do, we must quickly remind ourselves to stay humble. The truth is, we haven't fully realized Christ's peace. And what I mean by that is all of us are still learning, aren't we? Or at least we should be still learning what it means to walk in this peace more and more each day. Nobody's fully arrived as to what it means to fully live in Christ's peace in this world. If you had fully arrived, I promise you, you'd be listening to God a whole lot more and praying to him a whole lot more than any of us ever do. We must learn from the mistake the disciples make. Let's look at it in verse 29. His disciples said, Ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. But remember, before we go on, what did Jesus say? He says, I, A day is coming when I will speak plainly to you. He didn't say it's arrived yet. But they say, Ah, now you are. It is in the present. Verse 30, Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. And Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father 
is with me. Right? The disciples make the mistake of thinking, ah, we understand it all now. We've fully arrived. Jesus, we believe after everything you've told us, we believe you know all things. Nobody needs to question you anymore. We believe that you have come from God. And yet the disciples are thinking they've arrived, and what do they still not understand? The death and resurrection of Jesus? They don't understand the coming of the Spirit. They don't understand what Jesus means by his return. And they already think they've arrived. How sad is that? You know anybody like this? It's like they watch one sports game with you and then all of a sudden they're telling you on how the sport should be played. Or all of a sudden they're cheering for one team and, or yeah, one team in one game that they see on the TV and all of a sudden now they're talking about all these players like they've been watching them for the last decade. Right? How frustrating are those people to us? They're like, you have no clue. I've been watching these guys for 25 years. You have no idea who this team is. And yet here are the disciples saying, ah, we don't understand the death, resurrection, the coming of the Spirit, or the return of Christ. But we've arrived. We get it now, Jesus. Well, Jesus quickly reminds them, right? Your belief needs to be evaluated for a moment here. You think you believe now? When I'm arrested and taken to the cross, you're going to scatter. Each of you are going to be left in your own home, and you're leaving me alone. Not that I am alone, because the Father's with him, right? Right? But still, the point remains. This I've arrived, this I believe mentality is quickly going to turn into them hiding in their homes. Even when Jesus is resurrected, what are they doing? They're hiding in the upper room with the doors locked. They've abandoned him after they just said, we finally got it. This is just a reminder for us that while we do rejoice... We should have peace with the understanding we do have because we do have a greater understanding than what they did at this point, right? We do understand the death and resurrection and to some extent we understand the return of Christ, though not in its fullness. Just try to read Revelation, right? So while we can rejoice with all of that, we must all remember we have much further to go, don't we? We can be thankful and at peace that we have a reconciled relationship to the Father while also saying, I want to continue to grow in that relationship with the Father. It's this humility, this understanding that we must continue to grow, that takes us over and over again to this, this two, relate, two aspects of the relationship, right? If I know I need to grow, I want Jesus to continue to tell me plainly about the Father. If I know I need to grow, I'm going to continue to go to the Father asking him to help me grow, to help me produce fruit, to help me have more joy, to help me have more peace. Even though we rejoice with all that we do understand that Christ has done, we all must also agree with the words of Paul in Romans chapter 11, verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. There's so much more we don't know. 
so much more of this peace relationship that we haven't realized yet. But that doesn't mean that we just ignore it, right? This peace that we have realized in Christ should stir us to take courage as we go through this life. What we do know in Christ and what we trust in Christ should have us taking heart in Christ's peace. We looked at the final verse at the very beginning to show the big picture, but now we're going to look at it again here at the end, verse 33. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. In Christ, all that we've seen, particularly this changed relationship between us and God, this has been accomplished by Christ, it gives us peace between us and God. A peace that keeps us moving in this world, because let's be honest, right? Tribulation is inevitable. Jesus states it here. In the world, you will have tribulation. The world of unbelief will hate those who believe. Our sin-filled world will cause us to get sick with diseases and illnesses. Earthly pursuits will fail us. People are going to sin against us. Your finances may never be what you hoped that they would be. Your job may never feel as fulfilling as you had hoped it would be. Families are going to break apart. Governments are going to abuse their powers. But in that tribulation, those who have peace through Jesus with the Father can do what? Take heart. We can have courage. We can keep on moving. We can walk in peace. We can never give up. Why? Because Jesus has overcome the world. Everything the world threw at him, he defeated. Everything. He never sinned. Never for one moment was outside the Father's will of his life. He went to the cross paid for our sin, defeated the devil, power over death when he's resurrected. Everything in this world has already been conquered by Jesus. The battle is already won. And for those of us who have peace through Jesus, we also will overcome and conquer this world. Let me read you just one verse out of John's epistle. 1 John chapter 5, verse 4. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. As you have faith in Christ, believe in Christ, love Christ, trust in Christ, You have peace with God. Which means now you can come to Christ and hear him speak plainly about the Father. You can come to the Father's throne of grace with complete confidence that he's going to hear you and he's going to give you exactly what you need for fullness of joy 
give you exactly what you need to produce fruit, give you exactly what you need to give him glory. My friends, may we have this peace. May we take heart as we live in this world full of tribulation because Jesus has overcome the world and so also will we. It's our promise. Because he has overcome, so also will you and I. So take heart. Go from this place each and every week and live in this world with confidence, with courage, that you have peace with the only one who really matters. You have peace with the Father. Something nothing else could ever provide for you. And now you can hear from him. And now you can go and speak yourself to him. He's overcome the world. So also will we. Let's pray. Father, sometimes it's hard for us to want to talk about ourselves as, as victorious, ourselves as conquerors, ourselves as overcomers. It feels arrogant at times. It feels like we're thinking too highly of ourselves. Help our hearts and our minds, Lord, to be focused on the truth of these verses, that we are more than conquerors in this world, but only because, only because of Jesus who already overcame the world. Our conquering is only his conquering. It's not anything of ourselves, but it's only as we trust in him, believe in him, love him, that we find ourselves overcoming this world because only through him we have peace with you. So I ask you this morning, Father, I come to you and ask that we would receive exactly what you told us we would receive. That you would give us fullness of joy, fullness of peace, that you would produce these fruits in our lives, but not just for the sake of producing fruit, but producing fruit that glorifies you. May that be our purpose as we leave this place, as we wake up each morning. May our purpose be to pursue your glory, that you would be worshipped by our lives and that we would share with others that they might also come to know you, have peace with you, and worship you. Father, help us remember this is all that matters. This is what our entire lives are about, is to bring honor and glory to you and help others to see it and do it the same. May we never lose sight of it, God. May our eyes be fully fixed on Jesus through whom we have peace with you by his death and resurrection. May that changed relationship change our entire lives. We ask all this in his name. Amen. We're going to come up.